going to invite you to open your Bibles up to uh, Luke chapter 2 and the book of Isaiah. Just kind of keep your finger or a placeholder in, in Luke chapter 2, but primarily Isaiah chapter 57. If you picked up the notes when you came in this morning, one of the bulletins you'll find in there, the notes look a little bit different than normal. Um, it, it's just an outline of verses and Greek words and Hebrew words, things that I'd love for you to follow along with. And so even if you didn't bring a Bible in this morning, you're going to either see it up on the screen or you're going to see it in those notes this morning so that you can track along with us. Um, before we step into this, though, would you take a minute and pray with me? I'll ask God to center our thoughts. God, we come to you as a group of people who recognize that we have so much on our mind right now. It's very difficult to hear you through all the clutter. But we willingly invite you to speak to us. And perhaps, Father, for someone here in such a way that they've never heard you before. God, I ask that Your Word would indeed come alive. You've promised that it's sharper than a two-edged sword and that it can even penetrate to our soul. God, the closest we could associate that with is with a, a surgeon's scalpel. Father, we know sharp things, but we don't know anything that can penetrate to a soul except You. And so we invite you, your spirit, to inhabit this auditorium, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and to comprehend in ways that perhaps we never have before. God, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine with me that you're stepping out onto the ledge of a canyon wall. And before you is a deep, deep abyss. It's dark. The footing that you stand on is firm. It's solid. You can trust it. But what's in front of you scares the hell out of you because it's destruction. Spanning from one side of the chasm to the other is a bridge. Rising up from the depths of the abyss is this noise. And it's so consuming. You can barely hear yourself. There's a mist and a fog and you look from one side of the chasm to the other, and it's so far, you can barely see, but it looks like the face of one of your friends. And they're screaming at you. They're yelling, you see their mouth moving, but you can't hear them. I'm gonna leave you on that cliff for right now. It's okay, it's safe. Just stay there with me, okay? I want you to indulge me 
while you stand on one side of the chasm and your friend is on the other side of the chasm. Indulge me as I set this up because we are about to tread where most people have never gone before. Very few people have stepped into this territory. I want to help you see a perspective as we take a tour of the Bible this morning that will help you as you approach Christmas and see the majesty of our God. So we start with Peter. Peter's the one to proclaim the majesty of Jesus. You'll see it in the screen as well as on your notes, and perhaps you have your Bible with you. But 2 Peter 1.16 says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to His majesty. The word is megalotes. Megalotes is a big Greek word, and it means mighty power. I'm not even sure if it's an English word, but it's also in there superbness, His splendor. Well, that's a very consistent description with what Paul gave us because Paul said, He encountered God in a very similar fashion. Even though he wasn't one of the 12 disciples, he tells us that he was caught up into heaven and he saw things which a man can't even speak of. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 12.2. I know a man in Christ, he's speaking in the third person of himself, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows Such a man was caught up into the third heaven. Verse 4, up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn because the things he saw were so awesome of the megalotes of our God. He couldn't even talk about it. So God gave him a thorn to keep him from getting puffed up. But it allowed him to write with the authority that you see Paul write of in the New Testament. Those accounts are both very consistent with Isaiah's encounter with God. The megalotes. Go with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 6.1 I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. Verse 5, Then I said, Woe to me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And He is awesome. We have to accept the fact that we have a corrupted view of a king because of the culture that we live in. See, we have the king of pop. We have the king of rock and roll. We have the king of the court, LeBron James. We have the king of Wall Street. You know, Bernie Madoff was actually considered the king of Wall Street. We even have the Burger King. See, we have a corrupted view of what it means to have a king. So it's very hard to identify when we look at this and say, I saw the Lord 
And woe to me, I am undone. For my eyes have seen the king of glory. Because our, our, our understanding is very limited. And this is the problem. It depreciates a major component of the Christmas story. Because what we're told is the king who was on high became the baby in the manger. And so naturally, we focus on what we can identify with. So we think of the baby in the manger and the straw and the shepherds in the barn because that's what we know. We haven't seen the king. So it's hard for us to identify with. But consistently throughout Scripture is this theme of the majesty and the splendor and the power and the magnificence of the Almighty One. So here's what I contend this morning. I contend that if we can keep in the forefront of our minds over the next nine days as Christmas approaches, and hopefully every day thereafter, if we can keep in the forefront of our mind that the creator of the universe, who at this very moment sits in royal splendor on a golden throne with myriads upon myriads of angels attending to him, coming and going and serving him, and all those who died in Christ before us are now in his presence in awe on their face worshiping him, if we can keep that perspective in our mind, it doesn't matter on Christmas morning what you open up or what you get or that you have to fight the crowds to go back to Target to return something. It doesn't matter because you'll be filled with humility and humbleness that this one relinquished his throne of gold for one distinct purpose, to extend an invitation, and it's an invitation like none other, an invitation that's never been received like this on planet Earth before. So let's do this. Let's go to the familiar. You've got your Bibles. You've got your notes. You'll see it on the screen. Luke chapter 2. Let's go to something very familiar to us to help us understand this. So here's the setting. God rips open the sky he rolls back the nighttime darkness like it's a scroll. And in a micro moment, bursting on the scene is this explosion of light. Angels in a symphony of voices that's never been heard like anything ever before. Never, never since has anyone had an announcement like this. I don't know what kind of a birth announcement you had. I, I know what mine was. It's just two little lines in the Muskegon Chronicle. It says, Mark Kring, baby boy, born to Richard and Ruth Kring in Hackley Hospital in Muskegon, Michigan. There are no angels shouting, hey, pay attention, Mark Kring's been born. Even though he thinks the king of Kring's he is, he's not. <laughs> See, we like to think a lot of ourselves, but I bet your birth announcement was a lot like mine. Maybe some of you didn't even have one. This birth announcement, it's a personal invitation. The most magnificent you'll ever hear of because the royal ambassadors from God's throne room came to earth in that micro moment and extended an invitation. And what was the invitation? The invitation was to investigate. That's what they offered the shepherds. Go and see this thing. Investigate it for yourself. It's the greatest pronouncement in the history of the world. God has arrived. Who could imagine that? Because not since the time of the original creation, we talked about this three weeks ago, when man fell 
and God had been walking with man in the garden of, in the cool of the day up until that point. Man fell. God no longer walked with man. Now the angels arrive and say, God is going to walk with man again. So this one who's older than time and, and greater than death has re-entered our planet. So let's ask the question, what did it take for God to re-enter our planet? What did God the Son have to leave on his throne in order to come to us? And understand this very important theological principle. Jesus did not have to come to earth to be like us so that he could understand us. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He totally understands us. He came to earth so that we could identify with him so that he could provide the perfect sacrifice. And so when he came, he came in utter humility. And I don't know if you've ever approached this verse before this way that I'm about to show you in Philippians 2. But look at it as the humbling of God. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Philippians 2.6 says this, Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And the next time you get a knock on your door from a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or a Muslim begins to talk to you and says, Jesus Christ was not the Son of God, you take them to Philippians 2.6 because that is who he is. He existed before time began. He was not born at the time that Mary conceived and gave birth to him, but rather he pre-existed and came to the earth in form of man. That is the truth of Scripture. So what we're looking at here is the humbling of God. And in order to understand this, we have to think of it this way. He is infinitely above all that he has ever created, including the angels. The angels are not on the same plane as God. As God made man, God made the angels. Angels are pure in his sight because they're untainted from sin. There's no barrier of impurity between the angels and God. Yet, all of God's interactions with everything that he has ever created are a condescension of himself. It's a humbling of God. It's necessary that he humble himself even to look upon the things in heaven. I don't know if you knew that. Let me show you where I got that from. That comes from Psalm 113.5. Who is like the Lord our God who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? See, he's infinitely above all created things. So the distance between him and the highest created angel, even Gabriel and Michael, is so infinitesimal it can't even be measured God is that high so for God to have dealings with a fallen man is a great condescension that he would empty himself of all of his divine attributes and come to earth because the very best of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God that's what Scripture tells us in Romans 3. The very best of us have fallen short of the glory of God. So that's why David wrote this in Psalm 8. What is man that you would even take thought of us? Who are we that you would even think of us? 
So in defining the capacities of any creature, any, any being, we express ideas here on planet Earth by comparing one with another. So let's go back to LeBron James. We think, LeBron James, man, he plays basketball like Michael Jordan. Well, in the 9 o'clock service, I had guys booing me on that one. They said, no, you're kidding me, he's not that good. Well, whatever, we use an individual to compare one to another. We talk about a great cook, we might say, wow, she cooks so well, she cooks like my mom. Well, that one doesn't work for me because my mom wasn't that good of a cook. <laughs> Sorry, mom. I'm serious. I mean, everything was either a burnt offering or a sacrifice. It, <laughs> no question. She's going to smack me for that one one day. <laughs> so in defining the capacities of God, though, what do you compare him against? Who is like our God? How can you compare him? Scripture tells us his greatness is so majestic, it's unsearchable. Look at your notes. Look on the screen, Psalm 145.3. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. You can't even know it. He's so great that heaven and earth can't even contain him. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago when we took a tour of the Milky Way galaxy and started looking at the stars out there and we began to realize we are really tiny and we understand that God just breathed stars out of his mouth when we come to Isaiah 66 1 and we hear him say heaven is my throne look at it very closely Isaiah 66 1 thus says the Lord heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool where then is a house you could build for me and where is a place that I may rest for my hand made all these things Thus all these things came into being. So I identify with Moses. And I haven't seen God. Moses saw God. And here's all he could say. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. you got left, nothing left to say. What, what else are you going to say? So this one who can't even be contained in all of heaven, according to Isaiah 66, 1, Look at Isaiah 66, 2. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. You ever feel like God does not have his eye on you? Like perhaps he's not even concerned with how rough the road is that you're on right now? Well, let's look first at what he says when he says, I've got my eye on those who are humble and contrite. What does that actually mean, to be humble and contrite? Humble is when we recognize we're not all that. We're not all sufficient. Even when people around us think that we are. Even when people think, wow, that person's really got their act together. We know inside, can I get an amen, that we're not. We're not all that. That's an attitude of humility. We know differently. And you know, you can be humble even when life's good. As a matter of fact, the biblical definition for humility doesn't mean a lack of prosperity. It doesn't mean that you have to abase yourself in squalor. It's, it's simply under, you understand that everything that you have comes from Him. It's just easier to have humility when you're not surrounded with all the complexities of life? You know, when you're living in Kenya in an eight-by-eight shed, those are some pretty humble people. 
It's just easier. But it doesn't mean you have to abase yourself. So a humble posture really fastens us, us to our God. Think in terms of like a mountain climber, a wall climber, a rock climber who has the safety ropes on him. He's anchored to the rock of the wall. God says that one who is humble and contrite, I'm anchored to that one. They're locked into me because I am the rock. Those safety ropes are attached to me. I'm focused on them. So granted, we don't have to be abased in order to be humble, but there's times when things really do go south, even to the point of crushing us. And that really gets God's focus. But there's a component how that happens. I'll show you that in just a moment. Let's look at the word contrite. It's in your notes as well. He says, those who are contrite of spirit, they really get my attention. The word is nake. And it means to be injured, to be maimed, smitten. Do you feel like you got a little limp in your heart this morning? Maybe are you walking with a cane? You're humble, you're contrite of spirit. What's the third component? When God is most focused on you, he says in verse 2, the one who trembles at my word. Even though I'm dwelling on high, even though I'm the high and lofty one, I look to the one who is humble and contrite. So you feel like you're driving down this rough road this morning, perhaps? Or maybe if this doesn't resonate with you, you know someone who is? Pay close attention to what we're about to look at. This is Isaiah 61.1, and let's look at the nature of our God. The Spirit of, our, of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners you know who said that? That was Jesus' opening statement the very first time he stepped onto the public scene. He quoted Isaiah 61.1. And he said, here is going to be the benchmark of how you will identify me because God has anointed me and has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. I want to be lined up with a guy like that. That's who God is. So God's telling us He's personally walked on your freeway. He knows what it is to walk on your highway system. Now, whether you know it or not, the U.S. highway system is a remarkable accomplishment of modern engineering. And I'm here to tell you, I've been in other countries around the world, and it doesn't measure up to what we have here in the United States. As a matter of fact, we have roads that go north and south for one, and east and west, and they make sense. They're labeled. We have stoplights. We have road signs. We have fences to keep the deer potentially from jumping over them and running out onto the highway. We even have safety patrol cars that go out on the road just to watch for people who are broken down or for the nutsos that want to drive too crazy. But that's our system here in the United States. And it makes sense. It's logical. That is not the case in other countries. Rough roads are the day of order in Kenya. Matter of fact, those who are in the service that were on that trip with me know what it was to just kind of <gasps> draw your breath in constantly when traffic was coming at you because they've taken defensive driving to a whole new level. It's offensive driving. Let alone the fact that 
There's dead bodies on the road. And I'm not talking about animals. Humans mowed over by vehicles and cars just keep on going. Baboons, litter, trash, potholes you could put an elephant in. That's a rough road system. So in the ancient days, the days of the Bible, God wrote about road systems because rough roads were known by people. And they associated that with people of low stature and people of high stature. In the, in the ancient days, in the times of the Bible, there were dangerous deep canyons just like we have today. There were very high mountaintops, mountain passes. Roads were heavily rutted. People traveled with their camels and donkeys. Well, there, there's no road stop service to take your broken down donkey into. You can't get a flat fixed. People traveled in big caravans to protect themselves from thieves. They knew rough road systems. Did you know that your God is a road builder? He is a master of infrastructure. I'm going to take you now to Isaiah 57, 14, where I had you put your finger at the beginning of the service. And let's look at our God who is a road builder. It says this in verse 14, and it will be said, notice it's looking forward, projecting forward in time. It will be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So God promised a highway is going to be built and the obstacles are going to be removed. So he starts off by saying, build up, build up, prepare the way. The Hebrew word that's in your notes this morning, you'll see it on the screen, is the word arach. And it'll be a good Hebrew, you got to say it with me, okay? The word, and you got to really hock it up in your throat because it's, it's, it's like you want to spit. Arach. Sorry for the front row. Arach. Because they really felt their language. So the word, the way, is arach. And it's a a, uh, well-trodden road. It's the pathway that people were familiar with. Well, God is saying, I want this highway to be built up. How did they make highways at that period of time? We send Cat 9 bulldozers out. Well, they sent slaves out. And they would pull down the hills and they would pulverize it with sledgehammers and pickaxes and try and fill in the low spots. And where there were low spots, they'd bring them up and where there were high spots, they would bring them down trying to make a smooth road. But after they'd piled up and piled up and heaped up, they were left with all this rubble in the road. So the next thing he says in verse 14 is remove every obstacle. I want you to build it up and build it up and then remove the obstacle. That's the mikshol. That's the stumbling block or the, the offense, the thing that would keep you from getting to your destination. Why? Because God says in verse 15, I dwell on a high and lofty place and my people need a road to get to me because I want to dwell with them who are contrite and lowly of spirit. So I dwell in two places. I dwell in the high and lofty, but I dwell with those who are contrite and humble and low of spirit. So although I have a mansion, although I dwell on high, I am the God who will come to the low. Why? What is his focus? He tells you right there. In order to revive the heart of the lowly. 
in order to revive the heart of the contrite. The word revive literally means in the Hebrew to make alive, to bring back to life. Think of CPR. What kind of a king does that? The king who builds a road. Now, whether you know it or not, in ancient times, kings, when they arrived into a city, would send ambassadors ahead of their arrival. The ambassadors would deliver a note to the people of the region saying, the king is coming, prepare the way. And so the people of the region would go out and they would begin to examine their roads coming into the city because they didn't want the king to arrive on a rough highway. So they would send them out to smooth out the road to get rid of the rubble that's in the way. Isaiah wrote about this in reference to God. Look with me. Isaiah 40, verse 3 on the screen. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley because the king was coming. See, Isaiah used that reference because that was really familiar language to them. But what I want you to notice in these next two verses is the transition in the language. David begins to write about God's highway. And he says this in Psalm 5.8, O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way yashar, smooth, straight. Give me a straight path to you, God. Because David had known what it is to go down some hard roads. People trying to kill him, literally living out of caves. He knew what it was to walk down really hard roads. He wasn't raised with a silver spoon in his mouth. But his little boy, Solomon, was. Solomon was raised with a silver spoon in his mouth because he was raised in the palace of the king after David became king. Well, let's look at how Solomon wrote about God's roads. He says in Proverbs 3, 6, In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Now, Solomon knew what it is to go down some really hard roads too. But Solomon suffered from a very serious disease. I don't know if you're aware of that. And it afflicted him most of his life. It it was actually a self-inflicted disease called stupidity. Wisest man in the world made the stupidest decisions you will ever read about in all of the Bible. God favored him and gave him great wisdom. And yet he can write, God will make your paths straight. Yeshar. God knows how to build a road system. What are they referring to here? Look specifically at Psalm 5.8 and at Proverbs 3.6, and you see both King David and King Solomon saying the same thing. God is the one who does the road building. As much as you might try to build it upon yourself and find your own path to God, God is the one who is making the path straight. And when it comes to the road that God has built, it's narrow, it's solid, and it has a firm foundation. So that's why Jesus used that analogy in Matthew 7 when he said, there's a really broad highway system and it leads to destruction. Look with me at Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 13. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So picture with me, church, a mass of people walking down a very wide highway system. 
and a few turn off the path. And they find a narrow trail. It's got firm foundation. They walk along it for a ways until they come to a great canyon. And the chasm is so deep. And the abyss is so dark. But there's a roar coming up from it. And the footing that you stand on is firm and solid and trusted and true. You know that if you step off the ledge, it is certain instant death. But spreading out before you, someone has built a bridge. A God of wonders who specializes in infrastructure has spanned the chasm. You cross that firm bridge only to turn around and look back through the mist and the roar of the noise. And you hear the voice of a friend. That friend is shouting to you and you strain to hear. Is it safe? What? Is it secure? Can I trust it? Of course you can trust it. I know the road builder personally. You can walk across that. How can I know? How can I know that the one who built that road can be trusted? I guarantee you, church, you have friends this week who are looking at what happened in Connecticut and they're standing on one side of the bridge yelling across to you, how can I trust a God that would allow those children to be slaughtered? What do I do with that? They're not asking how as much as they're asking why. Why didn't God stop him? Listen closely. This is where many people stumble. The God of wonders who built this bridge through the Lord Jesus Christ to get to Him, to cross that chasm. He is the same God who said to us, we are a fallen people living in a fallen world. And He has given us free will. And free will means we get to carry out our activities. And I know it sounds crass and theological. It's the last thing I would say in the first 48 hours to a mom who's just had her five-year-old killed in their classroom. But the theological truth of the Bible is this. We are a fallen people living in a fallen world and we're surrounded by people who make decisions all the time that are opposed to God. That young man was just one of them. So he stands opposed to God, and today he stands in judgment by God because of his actions. Every one of us will stand before that same God one day and will say, what did you do with the bridge I gave you to get to me? So that young man, why ever he made the decision that he made, we don't know, we will probably never know, perhaps maybe one day in eternity. 
But the truth is, whether it's the tsunami that destroys Japan or the earthquake in Haiti or a young man that walks into a movie theater in Colorado and decides to kill people at midnight or a 20-year-old troubled boy who executes children, God is still God. God is still on his throne. So if God stopped that young man from walking into that school, tomorrow he would have to stop you whenever you choose to do something that is against his nature and purpose and character. But he's a God who gave us free will. And he gave us the ability to act. And we choose, as God's people, to act as people who stand in humbleness and contriteness of heart, who tremble at his word because that's the one who God turns to. So this week, as you talk to your friends, and there's going to be a lot of lunchroom conversations, I promise you, take them to God's word. You don't have the answers. I don't have the answers. God has the answers. But you have to help them to trust him, to know that that road builder has built a bridge that is incredibly dependable. Our God is an awesome God, and he reigns. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the, the truth of your word and that you have revealed to us that you know beyond any one of us how to engineer a road system and how to build a superstructure and you did give us a bridge through the Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate sacrifice who humbled himself and became a man after he emptied himself. He willingly came to this earth so that the invitation to investigate what you have given us could be explored. Father, I ask that you remind us of these truths as we take on this day and the week ahead of us, even as our hearts are troubled and we grieve. Help us not to grieve as those who have no hope, but as those who know you through the power and the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.